Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcasts and give us any constructive feedback. You're listening to The National as published on Friday the 14th of January 2022. News. SWG3 secures next funding round in bid to turn area into unique cultural spot by Gregor Young, journalist. New grants will fund the next phase of a Scottish multidisciplinary arts venue as it plans to transform the entire campus into an iconic new cultural destination in Scotland. SWG3 said that work has begun on the next phase of its ambitions to reshape the venue and the surrounding areas into a world-class cultural destination. The venue has been granted £1,531,180 through a combination of funders including the Scottish Government Regeneration Capital Grant Fund, Foundation Scotland, William Grant Foundation, the National Lottery through Creative Scotland and Scottish Enterprise, the latter of which will specifically fund a purpose-built Yard Works studio. The new space will provide a home for hundreds of artists to create work in, as well as youth and community organisations, and grow SWG3's arts programme. Andrew Fleming-Brown, founder and managing director of SWG3, said... We are absolutely delighted with this funding support. Yardworks has been a big part of our arts programme over the past few years and having the opportunity to develop a purpose-built facility to grow the programme will not just benefit the area culturally but also have wider social and economic impact through the community. Situated on the edge of Eastvale Place, the venue says the Yardworks studio is the next step in the reimagining of the area into a striking street arts district and forms part of the ongoing improvements that SWG3 plan to carry out, transforming it into a unique and distinct cultural quarter. Paul Burns, Interim Deputy Director of Arts and Engagement at Creative Scotland said, the Yard Work Studio is another significant milestone in the development of SWG3 and, importantly, to the regeneration of Glasgow's Riverside. The total development cost of the master plan project is £7.1 million, with £3.75 million raised to date, which will come from a combination of private and public sector investments. The first phase, which was major infrastructure works to improve public access and connectivity with funding from Clyde Mission, will complete this month. Scottish Enterprises Director of Place, Elaine Morrison, said, This project is a great example of how Scottish Enterprise is working with partners across the country to make places for communities, creating jobs and helping us become a net zero emissions economy. The SWG3 master plan is really helping transform that part of Glasgow into a cultural hub and more importantly using arts, 
creativity and nature to tackle poverty in neighbouring communities. As part of the regeneration of the Glasgow Riverside Innovation District, this is creative placemaking in action and we are really excited to be part of it. This article was by Gregor Young. You're listening to The National as published on Friday the 14th of January 2022. Politics. Alistair Jack backed Independent Scots Tory Party and offered it significant sums by Hamish Morrison, political reporter. Alistair Jack backed a breakaway Scottish Conservative Party and offered it significant sums of cash. The current Scottish Secretary, who represents Dumfries and Galloway in Westminster, gave his backing to Murdo Fraser's 2011 Tory leadership bid. Fraser proposed splitting the Scottish Conservative Party from the UK Tories to detoxify the brand. Jack, a multi-millionaire, offered his support to the radical proposal and said he would be willing to fund the party if Fraser's bid was successful. The plans never came to fruition and Ruth Davidson was elected Scottish Tory leader. Scotsman reported Jack as saying of Fraser's failed bid, We shouldn't be frightened of stepping out on our own. I'm completely confident that we can raise more money for the new party than SCUP, Scottish Conservative and Unionist Party, has raised for many years. Everyone's concerns about Murdo's plans would be whether he would get enough support to get the party off the ground. For years, the Scottish Conservative and Unionist Party has needed someone to take the bull by the horns and tell us how to sort ourselves out. In Murdo, we have him. The question of a breakaway party has been opened again following Scottish Tory leader Douglas Ross calling for Boris Johnson's resignation after the Prime Minister admitted to attending a party in Downing Street during the height of lockdown. It's understood Ross has the backing of all 31 Scottish Tory MSPs who agree the Prime Minister should back down. Analysis by Ballot Box Scotland called the situation within the Conservative Party unprecedented. Alistair Jack was approached for comment. This article was by Hamish Morrison. You're listening to The National as published on Friday the 14th of January 2022. Politics. Scotland and Wales doubt Tories will honour spirit of new Union Council of devolved leaders. By Xander Richards, multimedia journalist. A new Boris Johnson-chaired Council of Devolved Leaders aimed at bolstering the Union will not deliver the step change needed to improve intergovernmental relations, the Deputy First Minister has said. John Swinney hit out after the Tory government praised a landmark agreement to create a new council and committee system aimed at changing the way in which the Central Westminster Administration works with the devolved nations. The SNP MSP said that the much-lauded announcement was in fact just a rebranding of existing structures. The Welsh Government echoed Swinney in saying that the real test for the new structure will be whether the Tories follow the spirit of the review based on respect. Revealing its Intergovernmental Relations IGR review, the Tories said the plans would help the four governments work together with the principles of mutual respect, maintaining trust and positive working. The three-tier structure will have the council chaired by the Prime Minister at its head. The second tier will consist of two committees. One will be chaired by the Minister for Intergovernmental Relationships, currently Michael Gove, while the second will focus on finance. 
The UK government said there would also be the ability to create time-limited committees agreed by consensus to deal with specific issues as required. These would also sit on the second tier. The third tier will then be made up of the interministerial groups led by individual departments which will cover a wide range of policy issues within a given minister's or department's portfolio. The new structures will reportedly be supported by an independent secretariat made up of civil servants seconded from all four governments and will serve the UK government and its devolved counterparts equally. However, the SNP Green government in Edinburgh said that without a change in the substance of the engagement from Boris Johnson's Tories, the announcement would mean little. Deputy First Minister John Swinney said, This rebranding of existing structures will not deliver the step change in attitude and behaviour from the UK government that is needed if there is to be a genuine improvement in intergovernmental relations. What is urgently needed is a corresponding change in the substance of engagement. The UK government's handling of Brexit and imposition of the UK Internal Market Act 2020, which reduces the powers of the Scottish Parliament, despite explicit refusal of consent under the Sewell Convention, show that procedural improvements alone are not enough to reset the relationship. The real test will be whether the UK government is capable of delivering the goodwill and trust for improved intergovernmental relations and that the proposed arrangements lead to more meaningful engagement with productive outcomes. A Welsh government spokesperson said, We have been calling for shared governance of the UK and a change to the way in which the UK government works with the devolved governments. This package of reforms includes new structures and processes to enable meaningful engagement. The test will be whether the UK government follows the spirit of the review based on respect so that this new approach serves all governments equally and fairly. Prime Minister Boris Johnson said, When Team UK pulls together in common cause, spirit and endeavour, we will always be at our very best. We've shown time and time again the combined strength we have in facing off the shared challenges before us, while also seizing the opportunities ahead for the benefit of the whole United Kingdom. Today's announcements build upon that strength as we all continue to work together to deliver for the British people. Michael Gove said that the landmark agreement will build on the incredible amount of collaboration already taking place between the UK government and the devolved administrations. This article was by Xander Richards. From the Herald Scotland, Friday the 14th of January 2022, from the comment section. As part of the UK, Scotland will not be any better off if Boris Johnson goes. By columnist Joanna Cherry. This week, as we reach the high watermark of Tory sleaze, corruption and disdain for ordinary citizens, what was perhaps most instructive to voters in Scotland was the contempt displayed towards the Scottish Tory leader Douglas Ross by senior figures in his own party. Jacob Rees-Mogg said Ross is not a big figure in the Conservative Party. Well, that much we knew. But worse was to come from fellow Scott Michael Gove, whose withering put-down for the proles who haven't managed to escape the far north for betterment in London, was very revealing. My instant response is that he's an Elgin and the National Tory leader is in London. With that, the pompous and insecure Scot in London, desperately trying to ape his acquired social set, amplified and reflected back the derision for Scotland and the Scots which abounds at the heart of the British establishment. 
Yes, Boris and his mates despised the plebs, but even more so if they're in Scotland. As that contempt has become impossible to deny, and even Keir Stammer calls for Johnson's resignation, some ask whether it's wise for the SNP to force the resignation of Sophia Leandog Prime Minister. Much as some still ponder whether it was wise for the SNP to force the general election that so strengthened an already damaged Boris Johnson's hand in December 2019. Henry Kissinger famously said, America has no permanent friends or enemies, only interests. So, in the midst of this ever-growing scandal, what is the interest of Scotland and what will further the cause of independence? Scotland's impotence in the UK has led us being forced out of the EU against our will, despite all the assurances that this would not be allowed to happen. Yet the evidence that the EU is a much more attractive option than the union with England continues to mount, and the truth is that even if we get rid of Johnson, he will be replaced by another Tory leader who thinks Brexit is the settled will of the British people and who will be saddled with the deal Johnson negotiated. Indeed, even if Labour's poll lead holds up and they win the next UK general election before independence is secured, there is no reason to believe they would reverse Brexit and Starmer has set his face against independence and any deal with the NSNP. While the Partygate scandal raged this week, Labour held an opposition day debate to highlight the burdens currently faced by business businesses and to suggest some solutions. Astonishingly, the motion in the speech of their lead spokesperson made no mention of Brexit. Yet Brexit is forecast to do twice as much damage to the economy as COVID-19. In October, the Office for Budget Responsibilities, Economic and Fiscal Outlook forecast that even the long-term Brexit would cause a 4% hit to GDP, as opposed to a 2% hit from COVID. On the first anniversary of Brexit, Boris Johnson boasted of striking more than 70 new trade deals, but he did not bother to mention that all but two of them were with merely extending existing EU deals, or that the promised trade deal with the US has failed to materialise. He claimed to have taken back control of Britain's borders without mentioning the refugee crisis in the English Channel, which, absent international cooperation, is proving hard to solve. Nor did he mention the labour shortages which are particularly acute in our agricultural and hospitality sectors as a result of the loss of freedom of movement. And, as of January the 1st, there is a whole maze of new customs bureaucracy for those who wish to import goods from the EU to the UK. Goods imported from the EU now need immediate import declarations, not six months down the line as before. Food and plant products need to be notified in advance and you only get the tariff-free trade the PM promised if importers and exporters can prove that the goods were made substantially in the UK or the EU. British exporters to the EU had to face all this last year. It has drastically damaged the seafood industry in Scotland. But the UK government delayed the import controls in the UK until January the 1st this year. There are many more rules involving costly and time-consuming inspections on imports from the EU due to be introduced as 2022 progresses. It is understandable that the PM and the Tories don't want to mention these problems, but why are the official opposition so reluctant to do so? I imagine they don't want to antagonise the working class, pro-Brexit voters who broke down the red wall to elect so many Tory MPs for the first time two years ago. But that was then, and this is now. Opinion polls show that some of those new Tory MPs' coats are in very sugly pegs. Importantly, 
They also show that the public aren't happy with how Brexit is going. Last week, a YouGov survey showed that, that across the UK, only 15% of people think Brexit is going fairly well or very well, whereas 52% think it's going fairly or, even, or very badly. While Johnson's stock plummets, we should not forget that it was Tony MPs like Douglas Ross, now rushing to condemn him, who voted him in as leader, and who put him in a position to impose a particularly messy Brexit on all four constituent parts of the UK. They need to be made to own the consequences of their actions. But, as regards to Scotland's future, it does not matter much who the Tory leader is, and a Labour PM won't make that much difference either. Ultimately, realignment with the EU and re-entrance into the single market and customs union is necessary to undo the worst impacts of Brexit. However, rather than seek solutions, the UK under the Tories is agitating for further disruption by threatening to invoke Article 16 in Northern Ireland and frustrating Brexit negotiations on Northern Ireland. Yet Labour won't talk about it and Labour don't have a plan to do for what to do about it. Meanwhile, as my colleague Richard Thompson, the SNP spokesperson in Northern Ireland, revealed last week, the performance of the Irish economy, north and south, shows the benefits of membership of the single market. Figures from the Office for National Statistics show that the Northern Irish economy has largely recovered from the pandemic, with the best performance across all nations and regions of the UK. This suggests that the access to the single market afforded by the protocol is beneficial. In contrast, the Scottish economy has suffered a 6% hit since the final full quarter before the pandemic hit. South of what remains of the border imposed in Ireland 100 years ago, the Republic of Ireland has become economically stronger than the UK as the proportion of its export trading goods with the UK became a smaller proportion of its overall trade. Export figures from the Irish Central Statistics Office show that in 1973, when the UK and Ireland joined the European Community, Ireland exported nearly 55% of its goods to the UK. Now, with a more diverse economy, 90% of the country's exports are non-UK destinations. OECD data shows that this, its GDP per person has gone from only being 66% of the UK's in 1973 to over 200% in 2020, the latest year available. These figures show the benefits of membership of the biggest single market in the world, around seven times the size of the UK's internal market. They also give the lie to the Union's argument that Scotland must forever be predominantly reliant on its trade with England to thrive. But, for now, Scotland is cut off from the world's largest single market in a UK that has the lowest GDP per head, worst economic productivity, highest poverty rates and greatest inequality among its neighbours. This tale of two nations surely shows that no matter which PM replaces Johnson, as now seems inevitable, Scotland's interests lie in our going our own way and joining another union in which we can enjoy the benefits of relationship of equals. And that was a comment piece by Joanna Cherry. This article is from The National, date 17th January 2022, from the Culture section. Robert Burns was warned that he should not write in Scots. By Jack Hunter. Robert Burns was advised not to write in Scots by a correspondent who thought it would limit his audience, according to new research. 
a project by academics at the University of Glasgow's Centre for Robert Burns Studies, looked at letters to and from Scotland's National Bard. The team looked at some 800 letters written by Burns and around 300-400 letters from his friends and admirers and have put together both sides of the letter correspondence where available. They found that Dr John Moore advised the poet not to write in Scots, warning that London readers would not connect with it, although Burns ignored his suggestion. Dr Rona Brown, a senior lecturer in Scottish Literature at the University's Centre for Robert Burns Studies, said, In this correspondence, we get closer to Burns, the man, than anywhere else. His letters reveal his triumphs, failures, anxieties, fears and joys. Our edition of the correspondence is also presenting, for the first time, letters written to Burns as well as by Burns, allowing us to reconstruct personal dialogues from throughout Burns's life. Two of Burns's relationships stand out, with Dr John Moore and Mrs Frances Dunlop, and we have both sides of the correspondence. What is fascinating, for example, is that early on, Moore advised Burns not to write in Scots. He cautioned Burns that he was limiting his audience and felt that London readers wouldn't understand or connect with the Scots language. Dunlop advised him to avoid political subjects, but Burns is his own man and ignores the advice and carries on regardless. I think history has now shown that he was right. People around the globe will celebrate Burns Night on January 25th to celebrate the anniversary of the poet's birth on that date in 1759. The correspondence will be published as part of the new collected works of Robert Burns, published by the Oxford University Press. The new edition's publication of responses to the poet's letters also reveals that reactions to his works were not always what people might expect. Dr Craig Lamont, a research associate at Robert Burns Studies in the University of Glasgow, said, Burns says Dr. sends Dr John Moore a long, heartfelt letter, giving a detailed account of his childhood and life up to 1787. This letter is now known as Burns's autobiographical letter. In response, Moore asks Burns to divide your letters when they're so heavy because I was obliged to pay six and eightpence for it. The team will today premiere their video documentary on the editing Robert Burns for the 21st Century Correspondence Project. The centre will also host an online question and answer session on Thursday so that members of the public and Burns scholars can find out more about the project with more information available on Twitter via at Glasgow Burns. That article was by Jack Hunter. From the National, Monday the 17th of January 2022, from the comment section. Sport is changing for the better for people with disabilities. By Maureen McGonigal, sports columnist. Inclusion and diversity are frequently used words these days, 
But while they're easy to say, they're not always easy to put into practice. That's not a criticism, it's more a reality and can come from lack of awareness and knowledge. But that's not to say things aren't changing and we have moved on a lot from when I started out my career in sports administration. One of the good news stories that caught my eye was the opening of a gym in Straighton, Midlothian, which focuses on people with living with disabilities or long-term health conditions. Sitting outside what is termed as mainstream can be a lonely place, not just for an individual, but for their families, who can sometimes feel lost trying to find suitable interests that can accommodate their loved ones. Will Perry, who swam for Paralympics GB in the S600 metre freestyle at Tokyo 2020, highlighted just how difficult day-to-day life can be. He told how people laugh and stare at him in the street and take his picture without his permission. Will has dwarfism, which affects around 7,000 people in the UK. I can't begin to imagine the upset this kind of behaviour causes, or what pleasure the perpetrators get out of these senseless actions. We have some amazing Paralympians in Scotland, Maria Lyle and Kayleigh Hago, to name but two, but we need more coverage of the opportunities available to disabled people and also to highlight and create strong visible role models. Last year, for the first time, Scottish Women in Sport presented a separate Para-Athlete Award which was won by the amazing Aileen McGlynn. Scottish Disability Sport does an amazing array of work, not just with elite athletes, but for those who want to make friends, have fun and get a little fitter. I had the pleasure of working for them last year on the promotion of Bokia for the Scottish Women and Girls Sports Week and I met several young women who were wheelchair users. All of them had a great day and were looking to sign up on a regular basis. And that was a comment piece by Maureen McGonagall, sports columnist. From the National, Tuesday the 18th of January 2022, from the politics section, Dominic Rabb admits Downing Street party in Sky News interview. By multimedia journalist Angus Cochrane. Boris Johnson's deputy accidentally admitted there was a party at number 10 as he tried to rubbish claims the Prime Minister broke his own Covid rules. Dominic Rabb referred to the infamous Downing Street gathering on May the 20th, 2020 as a party during a car crash interview with Sky News. The Deputy Prime Minister was forced to quickly backtrack in an embarrassing blunder during the morning media rounds. Although Rabb insisted the Prime Minister has been straightforward with MPs, he suggested his boss should quit if he's found to have misled Parliament and fails to correct his remarks. It comes after Dominic Cummings claimed he told Johnson that the May the 20th event was a party, but that his warning was ignored. The PM's former aide said he would be willing to swear, under oath, that the Tory leader lied to Parliament after he told MPs he thought the Bring Your Own Booze event was a work meeting. Speaking to Sky's Key Barley, Rab denied he was aware of a drinking culture in Downing Street, but added, people were working extremely long hours, so it doesn't surprise me if people, as you see in other walks of life, had a glass of wine or beer at the end of a very long week. The Justice Secretary continued, There was speculation that the May 20th party was held in my honour to thank me. It's just ridiculous. Burley interjected, So it was a party? Prompting Rab to backtrack. No, exactly, air, no, air, the no, 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 the Deputy PM replied. This is the claim that was made. It was nonsense. I wasn't invited and I didn't attend. 
pressed about Cummings' claims, Rab said, The PM has been very clear that that's not true or accurate. The Justice Secretary was also questioned on BBC Breakfast. Asked about the ministerial code stating those who knowingly mislead Parliament will be expected to offer their resignation to the Prime Minister, Rab told the show, I think the ministerial code should be followed all, at all times. Pressed if a minister should resign if they lie to Parliament and fail to correct themselves, the minister replied, yes. And quizzed about how safe Johnson is as leader, Rab said, I'm confident he will carry on for many years and into the next election. He told BBC Radio 4's Today programme that deliberately lying to Parliament would normally be a resigning matter. If it's lying, deliberate in the way you describe, if it's not corrected immediately, it would normally, under the ministerial code and the governments around Parliament, be a resigning matter, Rab conceded. Downing Street has dismissed Cummings' allegations against the Prime Minister. A spokesman said, It is untrue the Prime Minister was warned about the event in advance. As he said earlier this week, he believed implicitly that this was a work event. He has apologised to the House and is committed to making a further statement once the investigation concludes. And that piece was by Angus Cochran. From the National, Tuesday the 18th of January 2022, from the news section. Employment in Scotland, more Scots employed now than before the pandemic. By Gregor Young. More Scots may now be employed by companies than there were before the start of the coronavirus pandemic, Employment Minister Richard Lockhead said. He told how early estimates from HM Revenue and Customs show that in December 2021 there were 2.42 million employees in Scotland, some 22,000 more than there were in February 2020. He made the comment that the latest data from the Office for National Statistics, ONS, showed 2,671,000 people aged 16 and over were in work from the period September to November last year an increase of 30,000 from the previous three months. The employment rate of 75.1% of all those aged 16 to 64 was slightly lower than the UK figure of 75.5%. But Scotland's unemployment rate was lower at 3.6% compared to 4.1% for the UK as a whole. A total of 100,000 Scots were unemployed in, in September to November, according to the ONS figures, a decrease of 21,000 from the previous quarter. Lockhead said, For September to November 2021, Scotland's estimated employment rate rose over the quarter to 75.1%, while the estimated unemployment rate fell to 3.6%. Separate HMRCL estimates show there were 2.42 million employees in Scotland in December 2021, 22,000 more than in February 2020, prior to the pandemic. The Minister continued, We are all too aware of the continuing impact and economic uncertainty that the Covid is having and that is why we are doing all we can to limit the spread of the virus and mitigate the effects it has on our economy. The 2022-23 Scottish budget invests an additional £68.3 million in employability and training to help businesses address skills shortages and create high quality, sustainable jobs. Spending in this area is targeted at all sectors and social groups including people currently furthest from employment, so that everyone in every region can benefit from Scotland's economic transformation. Lockhead added, To accelerate the potential of digital technology, £192 million is allocated to improve connectivity and boost the digital economy. 
including specific support for small and medium-sized businesses. And that was an article by Gregor Young. From The National, Tuesday the 18th of January 2022, from the news section, Huge Scotland renewable sale could bring oil-style boom to Scotland. By Kirsten Patterson. Scotland could be due another North Sea boom after bids were approved for offshore wind farms capable of generating more than twice the country's electricity needs. It's been 10 years since renewable firms had the chance to bid for a slice of the Crown Estate waters. It was hoped that the bidding round would lead to the installation of projects capable of a 10 gigawatt output. Instead, 17 projects with a combined 25 gigawatt potential have been approved in a £700 million sale. Funds raised will be channeled to the Scottish Government and First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has said the scale of opportunity here is truly historic. She said, Scotland puts Scotland at the forefront of the global development of offshore wind, represents a massive step forward in our transition to net zero and will help deliver the supply chain investments and high quality jobs that will make climate transition a fair one. The Scottish Government expects to secure at least £1 billion worth of investment in the Scottish supply chain for every gigawatt of power. Sturgeon says the workforce is superbly placed with transferable skills to capitalise on the transition to new energy sources and people working right now in the oil and gas sector in the northeast of Scotland can be confident of opportunities for the future. She went on, while it is not yet possible to say with certainty what the scale of development will ultimately be, there is no doubt that the scale of this opportunity is transformational, both for our environment and the economy. The projects include a £144 million floating farm and fixed wind scheme by Scottish Power Renewables, an £86 million floating installation from Shell New Energies and two others from BP Alternative Energy Investments and SSC's Renewables worth almost the same amount. Highlands and Islands Enterprises, HIE, has compared the sale to the black gold rush of the 1970s oil boom. It says the economic impact could be similar and hailed the potential for Scotland to become an exporter of offshore wind technology beyond 2030. Chief Executive Stuart Black said, Having the bulk of these projects in the Highlands and Islands will emphasise the natural advantages of our region, which will be firmly at the forefront of global offshore wind development. As a result, we can expect many new, highly skilled offshore wind-related jobs to be created in some of our more rural and island communities. We believe the economic impacts of the offshore wind industry will be along similar lines to what we saw 40 or so years ago with oil and gas developments and will help create the conditions for a just transition for both the highlands and islands and the climate. The sheer scale of what has been announced today will accelerate the development of our industries of the future such as green hydrogen production from offshore wind, creating new green fair work in our island and coastal communities. Scottish Greens Energy spokesperson Mark Ruskell said, This is the biggest industrial opportunity Scotland has had for decades and, unlike what's happened previously, comes with guaranteed jobs in the supply chain. For years the Scottish Greens have talked about the need for a green energy industrial strategy that can pave the way beyond the era of oil and gas and with Greens in government this announcement is a significant step forward. The Scottish Greens are committed to ensuring this green industrial revolution is delivered in a way that has a, has a positive impact on the marine environment. 
with investment in mitigating any negative impacts. Fabrice Levesque, Climate and Energy Lead at WWF Scotland, said These results are a big vote of confidence in renewable power and Scotland's green economy. Offshore wind has a vital role to play in helping to cut our climate emissions and is already powering hundreds of thousands of Scottish homes. As we electrify more of our transport system and change how we heat our homes and buildings, it's only right we continue to harness the power of this natural resource right on our doorstep. Each of these projects could create hundreds of jobs and will have a role in helping put Scotland on a path to a green recovery. However, there was scepticism about the value of the Scotland licensing round from Kenny McCaskill MP of the Alba Party, who compared it to selling the family silver cheap. He said, those who don't learn from history are destined to repeat it. It looks like the Scottish Government has surrendered vast chunks of the North Sea wind resource for a relative pittance just as Westminster gave away Scotland's oil in the 1970s. Instead of a one-off payment of under £700 million, there should be annual payments. Instead of Scottish resources being just handed over to international investment companies, there should be a public stake in every single field. One has to question the basic competence of County State Scotland. To think they have auctioned away 10 to 12 gigawatts of power, informed that industry estimates of the real capacity from this round alone is double that. Offshore wind is fast becoming the most lucrative major power source on the planet. Scotland has one quarter of the resource of Europe. It will be cold comfort to Scottish pensioners shivering their homes, facing vast fuel bills, to know that the Scottish Government have given away so much of the green power of the future for so little in return. And Richard Hardy, National Secretary for Scotland of the Prospect Trade Union, responding to Monday's Scotland announcement, said, It's vital that the money generated by today's Scotland announcement is used to address the jobs and training needs of a just transition if the Scottish Government is genuine about creating a renewables revolution. We have seen decades of governments failing to deliver on job promises in the renewable sector. It's not good for Scotland or Scottish workers if the main beneficiaries of today's announcement are factories and workers in the Middle East, China and Indonesia, something we've seen all too frequently frequently in the past. Scottish workers want to see a just transition into a renewable future with high quality jobs rooted in the fair work agenda. Now is the time for the Scottish Government to step up to the plate and deliver. And that piece is by Kirsten Patterson. From the National, Tuesday the 18th of January 2022, from the news section, Isle of Barra Distillers explains decision to go to four-day working week by Guy Stewart. An island distillery in Scotland has introduced a four-day working week for its close-knit team. The Isle of Barra Distillery's team of six will enjoy a shorter working week as of January 2022, with their health and mental well-being being top priority. Isle of Barra Distillers is Scotland's most westerly whiskey and gin producer, and was founded in 2017 by husband and wife Michael and Katie Morrison. The Morrison said, We have taken some time to think about the pros and cons, and had discussions with employees to make sure this change will benefit everyone. Our employees agreed they would prefer working slightly longer hours in order to work fewer days. The four-day working week would provide employees with more free time outside of work, with no loss in pay. They are all looking forward to the change in their working week, as there are several advantages, such as cutting down on childcare costs, less commuting to work, 
and simply having more time to spend with loved ones. The bosses added that, if needed, the change could be flexible to take into account their team circumstances and the hours they worked. The distillery said the small team had already adapted their work processes to the shorter week. The change means orders will no longer be dispatched on Fridays, but the distillery's team believes this is a worthwhile payoff as staff would come to work feeling refreshed and energised for their working week, boosting productivity. This decision comes following a national, nationwide discussion of the four-day working week and research from the think tank IPPR revealed that 80% of Scots were in favour of reduced hours if it did not mean losing pay. And that article was by Guy Stewart. Recorded from the National on the 18th of January 2022. From the Culture section, Scots Venue secures next funding round and bid to turn area into unique culture spot by Gregor Young. New grants will fund the next phase of a Scottish multidisciplinary arts venue as it plans to transform the entire campus into an iconic new cultural destination in Scotland. SWG3 said that work has begun on the next phase of its ambitions, to reshape the venue and the surrounding areas into a world-class cultural destination. The venue has been granted a £1,531,180 through a combination of funders, including the Scottish Government Regeneration Capital Grant Fund, Foundation Scotland, William Grant Foundation, the National Lottery through Creative Scotland and Scottish Enterprise, the latter of which will specifically fund a purpose-built yardwork studio. The new space will provide a home for hundreds of artists to create work in, as well as youth and community organisations, and grow SWG3's art programme. Andrew Fleming-Brown, founder and managing director of SWG3, said, We are absolutely delighted with this funding support. Yardworks has been a big part of our arts programme over the past few years, and having the opportunity to develop a purpose-built facility to grow the programme will not just benefit the area culturally, but also have wider social and economic impact through the community. Situated on the edge of Eastvale Place, the venue says the Yardworks studio is the next step in reimagining of the area into a striking street arts district and forms part of the ongoing improvement that SWG3 planned to carry out, transforming it into a unique and distinct cultural quarter. Paul Burns, Interim Deputy Director of Arts and Engagement at Creative Scotland said, The Yardwork Studio is another significant milestone in the development of SWG3 and importantly to the regeneration of Glasgow's Riverside. The total development cost of the master plan project is £7.1 million, with £3.75 million raised to date, which will come from a combination of private and public sector investments. The first phase, which was major infrastructure works to improve public access and connectivity with funding from Clyde Mission, will complete this month. Scottish Enterprises Director of Place, Elaine Morrison, said, This project is a great example of how Scottish Enterprise is working with partners across the country to make places for communities, creating jobs and helping us become a net zero emissions economy. The SWG3 master plan is really helping transform that part of Glasgow into a cultural hub and more importantly using arts, creativity and nature to tackle poverty in neighbouring communities. As part of the regeneration of the Glasgow Riverside Innovation District, this is creative placemaking in action and we are really excited to be part of it. That article was by Gregor Young. The National News, 
On Wednesday the 19th of January. My Old School, Alan Cumming film picked up by award-winning firm. An article by Greg Stewart. A film about Scotland's most notorious imposter, starring Alan Cumming, has been picked up by a film distribution company that has released Oscar-winning documentaries. My Old School is the debut feature by Jonah MacLeod and will premiere at Sundance in Utah on January the 23rd after being acquired by London-based film company Dogwoof. The film portrays the story of Brandon Lee, Scotland's most notorious imposter, who in 1993 posed as a 16-year-old schoolboy in Bears Den. Much-loved Scottish actor Cumming portrays the 30-year-old in the upcoming film that will feature interviews with Lee's old classmates and teachers. The story follows Lee, the new kid in school, as he is top of the class, acing exams and even taking the lead in the school musical. He's described as the model pupil until he's unmasked. Dogwoof has released four Oscar-winning documentaries and the BAFTA-winning Free Solo, the UK's highest-grossing documentary of 2019. Hopscotch Films, also a producer of award-winning films, joined the team creating My Old School. Producers John Archer and Olivia Lichtenstein said, This is a story that will remind you of your school days, an unforgettable tale told with warmth, verve and originality by Class 5C, who lived through this extraordinary deception and have never forgotten it, and now neither will you. Cumming said, This is a great Scottish tale, one that gripped the entire nation when it first broke back in the 1990s, and this documentary retells it from the point of view of the pupils and teachers it all happened to. Their experience, their truth and the legacy they still struggle with will, I believe, now captivate a global audience. It's told with a quirky sensitivity, humour and honesty. It's a story that's always fascinated me and I'm delighted to play a part in its telling. My Old School was developed and supported by the Scottish Government and the National Lottery through Screen Scotland, Creative Scotland's partnership for funding and aiding film production. An article by Greg Stewart. The National News, on Wednesday the 19th of January. Prince Andrew kept horrifically ill-advised company, says Minister James Heapy. Prince Andrew kept horrifically ill-advised company and his civil sex case risks overshadowing the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, a minister has said. Armed Forces Minister James Heapy said Andrew had caused enormous challenges for the royal family but avoided saying whether it was right for the Queen to strip her son of his military roles. Heapy said that as a minister he did not want to comment further as he might risk being too colourful. But he told LBC that Andrew had caused enormous challenges for the royal family in a year when we should be celebrating the extraordinary service of Her Majesty the Queen as she reaches her platinum jubilee. It comes as Andrew awaits a civil sex case in the US, with a trial scheduled to take place between September and December. Virginia Dufresne is suing the Duke for allegedly sexually assaulting her when she was a teenager and claims she was trafficked by Andrew's friend, the late convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein, to have sex with the Duke when she was 17 and a minor under US law. The Duke has strenuously denied the allegations. Dufresne claims Andrew had sex with her against her will at Ghislaine Maxwell's London home and at Epstein's mansion on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Maxwell, Epstein's former girlfriend and a friend of Andrew, was convicted in the US on December 29th of procuring teenage girls for Epstein to abuse and will be sentenced this summer.
The Duke is also alleged to have abused Dufresne on another occasion during a visit to Epstein's private island, Little St James, and on a separate occasion at Epstein's Manhattan mansion. The Queen has stripped Andrew of his remaining patronages and honorary military roles, as the monarchy distanced itself from the Duke ahead of potentially damaging developments in his lawsuit. An article by Laura Webster. The National News on Wednesday the 19th of January. Scottish ministers looking carefully at allowing more workers back to the office. By Emma O'Toole, multimedia journalist. More Scots could return to the office from next month, with ministers looking carefully at the possibility of increased hybrid working. Finance Secretary Kate Forbes said that could be the next step in the Scottish Government's phased approach to lifting coronavirus restrictions. Limits on the number of people who can attend outdoor events, which were imposed at the start of the Omicron wave, were removed earlier this week. Further restrictions, including the need for bars to operate table service only and asking people to limit meetups to a maximum of three households, will end next Monday. The changes were announced by First Minister Nicola Sturgeon on Tuesday and she pledged ministers will engage with businesses about hybrid working from February, which could see a part-time return to the office for some staff. Guidance requiring people to work from home where possible has been in place for much of the last two years in Scotland and Sturgeon said people are asked to continue to do so at this stage. Forbes said on Wednesday that more hybrid working could be the next step in the easing of restrictions. The Finance and Economy Secretary told BBC Radio Scotland's Good Morning Scotland programme Last week we started the phased removal of protections. This week we've gone further. We always do it on a phased approach. I think the next step is looking carefully at working from home and a number of other points. The First Minister said that hopefully as of the beginning of next month we'll move back to hybrid working where some people will be working from home but more will be working in the office. We'll be engaging with business on that point. Scotland's National Clinical Director, Professor Jason Leach, said the hope is to gradually introduce a return to the office over the next little while. He told BBC Breakfast, If you think about working from home, it's not so much the working from home that does it, it's everything around the working from home. It's the transportation, it's the retail, it's everything. If you're looking at the risk menu and you've got a cinema with 200 people in it, compared to asking the working population to go back on the trains, back on the buses, back to work, that's a different level of risk. So that's why we're holding that back for now. That was our advice, and then gradually we'll be able to get that back. I hope if Omicron continues on the downward slope, we don't get another variant. We'll be able to do that in the next few weeks and months. However, business leaders have insisted the end of homeworking must not be delayed any further. Liz Cameron, chief executive of the Scottish Chambers of Commerce, urged ministers to remove the shackles from offices as urgently as possible to provide real choice for employers and employees. Cameron pointed out that many firms in town and city centres rely on office workers for a large part of their income, and these businesses are reporting that this inflexibility is having a growing consequence for the productivity and well-being of their staff. An article by Emma O'Toole. The National News, on Wednesday the 19th of January. Christian Wakeford, Tory Bury MP, defects to Labour with attack on Boris Johnson. By Laura Webster, News and Features Editor. A Conservative MP has defected from the Conservatives to Labour as Boris Johnson faces no-confidence motion fears. Christian Wakeford, the Bury South MP, told Boris Johnson that you and the Conservative Party as a whole have shown themselves incapable of offering the leadership and government this country deserves. 
His move was announced just minutes before a session of Prime Minister's questions, with the timing calculated to cause maximum damage to Johnson. Wakeford won Bury South in 2019, a constituency which had elected a Labour MP at every election since 1997. He announced his decision in the Bury Times and sent a letter to Johnson explaining why he'd lost patience with his leadership. He wrote, I care passionately about the people of Bury South and I've concluded that the policies of the Conservative government that you lead are doing nothing to help the people of my constituency and indeed are only making the struggles they face on a daily basis worse. Britain needs a government focused on tackling the cost of living crisis and providing a path out of the pandemic that protects living standards and defends the security of all. Sir Keir Starmer welcomed the defection of Wakeford to the Labour Party. He said in a statement, I'd like to welcome Christian Wakeford to the Labour Party. He's always put the people of Bury South first. As Christian said, the policies of the Conservative government are doing nothing to help the people of Bury South and indeed are only making the struggles they face on a daily basis worse. I'm determined to build a new Britain which guarantees security, prosperity and respect for all. And I'm delighted that Christian has decided to join us in this endeavour. Wakeford was cheered by Labour MPs as he arrived in the chamber and sat behind Starmer for the Commons showdown with Johnson. The Prime Minister told Starmer the Conservative Party won Bury South for the first time in a generation under this Prime Minister on an agenda of uniting and levelling up and delivering for the people of Bury South. We will win again in Bury South. In Scotland, Labour MSP Mercedes Villalba was among those hitting out at Wakeford's move. The North East Scotland representative tweeted suspicion over his Labour values. She wrote, Consistently voted against measures to prevent climate change. Consistently voted against measures to reduce tax avoidance. Consistently voted for a stricter asylum system. This is not the voting record of someone fit to be a Labour representative. An article by Laura Webster. Recorded from The National on the 19th of January 2022. From the Culture section. Refugee Trail Launched in City Centre Reveals Holocaust-Era Jewish History by Gregor Young A refugee trail has been launched to reveal some of Scotland's hidden Holocaust-Era history. The Scottish Jewish Centre's Garnet Hill Refugee Trail goes from Garnet Hill Synagogue to the School of Art. Stopping off at prolific figures' homes along the way, the trail hopes to showcase the history of Jewish refugees in Glasgow. After the events, of Krishal Nach in 1938, UK government took in 10,000 sponsored Jewish children on the Kinder Transport Scheme. Hundreds came to Scotland and many settled in the area of Garnet Hill. Kerry Patterson, manage, manager of Jewish, Scottish Jewish Heritage Centre, said, This trail reveals places in the city that were vital for some of the refugees who make their home in Glasgow. Protest meetings were organised in Glasgow as soon as Hitler came into power in 1933 and the people of Glasgow supported the Jewish refugees who came here in the 1930s and the 1940s, just as they support contemporary refugee causes. The Scottish Jewish Heritage Centre launched last year and is based in the Garnet Hill Synagogue. It aims to showcase the heritage of Scottish Jews and expand access to local historical Jewish collections. Hear how the first Jewish congregation in Garnet Hill made an impact on the development of Victorian Glasgow, and how people in Scotland helped Jews find safety from Nazi-occupied Europe in the 1930s and 1940s. Philip Brodney, chair of the board of the Scottish Jewish Heritage Centre, said, 
the centre as a unique resource providing understanding and learning from a Scottish perspective about the Holocaust. This new trail, our first, takes information from the centre out into the community and we hope it will encourage local people and visitors to find out more about this fascinating history of Garnet Hill. The trail will run from the Garnet Hill Synagogue, the grounds of which stands on what was a refurbished house used as a boys' hostel for children who came on the Kinder Transport. From there, the trail will look at the home of refugees Hilda Goldwag and Cecile Schwarzschild and on to Renfrew Street to visit a hostel for Jewish women and girls. The trail then moves on to the Garnet Bank Primary School, which many of the boys from the hostel attended, then the school, Glasgow School of Art, where sculptor Benno Schultz helped fellow Jewish artist and architect Izzy Meinstein taught. The trail concludes at the Scottish Jewish Archive Centre, which houses a wide collection of documents, photographs and testimonies relating to the Jewish experience in Scotland, with its materials supporting the trail. Harvey Kaplan, director of the Scottish Jewish Archive Centre, said, Drawing from the Archive Centre's extensive collections, this new trail emphasises how European Jewish refugees found a safe haven in Glasgow. The Garnet Hill area has a proud and long-standing record from the 19th century to the present of welcoming immigrants and refugees. Tours can be booked on the Scottish Jewish Heritage Centre site, costing £5 per person, each session will last one and a half to two hours, and tours usually run twice weekly on Tuesdays and Thursdays. That article was by Gregor Young. The National, January 20. Holyrood votes down highly irresponsible Scottish Tory education motion. Report by Xander Richards. MSPs at Holyrood have voted down a highly irresponsible Scottish Tory motion on education. MSP Megan Gallagher tabled the motion in the Scottish Parliament which claimed that education has never been the First Minister Nicola Sturgeon's number one priority. It went on to express frustration at the widening attainment gap and the failure to guarantee that the 2022 school examination diet will go ahead in full. An SNP amendment to the motion passed by 67 votes to 54. Speaking in favour of the motion, Gallagher said young people were being left in limbo over their exams after it was announced a final decision on whether they will go forward could come as late as March. If teachers were given a clear steer by this government, they would be able to plan and make sure their students were ready to sit their exams, she said. She added, any responsible government would have started preparing for this year's exams last year and would make sure that alternative arrangements had been secured to ensure minimal disruption to school exams. In fact, two contingency plans were announced in August by the Scottish Qualifications Authority in case COVID-19 continues to create issues in education. The first allows the Scottish Government to make amendments to assessments if the pandemic causes interruptions to learning. 
but public health officials say exams can go ahead. The second means exams can be cancelled if advisors believe it would not be safe, with the diet replaced by a teacher judgment model. Responding to the Scots Tory, Education Secretary Shirley Ann Somerville said caution was still needed when approaching the exam diet due to the nature of the pandemic. She added, I strongly disagree with this highly irresponsible motion. As I have repeatedly set out since the beginning of this term, it is our firm intention for exams to take place. But it would be highly irresponsible to ignore the possibility, however exceptionally remote that we hope it will be, of the pandemic worsening. Therefore, we have a robust contingency should the public health conditions make exams impossible. Report by Xander Richards The National, January 20 Spiking by injection Police say no forensic evidence to support claims Report by the National News Desk Police investigating claims of spiking by injection in Scotland have found no forensic evidence to support any allegations, according to reports. Detectives across the country witnessed a surge in alleged spiking cases last autumn, with Police Scotland receiving dozens of complaints from people who said they had been spiked by injection. It came following an initial story in October of a 19-year-old girl in Nottingham who said she was spiked by a needle on a night out. Students started sharing their experiences on social media, sparking a girls' night in boycott of nightclubs and bars. Many report blacking out before waking up with puncture marks However, the Times reports that a senior detective within the force said a forensic examination revealed no substances linked to drink spiking over the last few months. Detective Chief Superintendent Laura McClucky told the Scottish Police Authority, I am pleased to say that we're not seeing any drugs within people's systems that we would class as being a drug that would be used in spiking. There is clearly alcohol involved. There is clearly recreational drug use involved. However, we don't have any identified cases of any spiking by injection in Scotland at this time. The Times reports that between January and October last year, Police Scotland received 51 complaints of alleged spiking by injection. There were 69 reports of drink spiking and 32 where the method was unclear. While most of those claiming to be targeted were women, 22 men also came forward with reports. Gary Ritchie, Assistant Chief Constable at Police Scotland said, Every report is and will be taken seriously and fully investigated. 
and that will include a full forensic investigation when appropriate. Katie McLeod from the Scottish Drugs Forum said, It is important to highlight that one of the effects of traumatic incidents on the brain is that they can impair our ability to file memories, which can bring in significant challenges for people reporting and gathering evidence. It is fairly common that people report incidents a number of days or longer afterwards, which would make detection of substances challenging, given some substances are out of the system within 24 hours. Report by National News Desk. The National, January 20. Rage at plans to give House of Lords greater powers over devolved bills. Report by Christine Patterson. A plan to give unelected peers a beefed up role over legislation involving devolved parliaments has drawn fury from the SNP and the Scottish Greens. The House of Lords Constitution Committee has published its blueprint for a stronger union in the 21st century. It includes calls for Barnet formula reform and for the Second Chamber to strengthen its scrutiny of bills that engage the Sewell Convention, which suggests Westminster will not normally pass laws on matters within the competence of Holyrood, the Senate or Stormont. This would help to create a revitalised, better functioning and less rancorous union, it is claimed. But the proposals have drawn fury from the SNP and the Greens, with the latter's Ross Greer telling the National, Scotland's future must be determined by the people who live here, not Westminster's unelected, unaccountable lords. We do not need a bunch of cronies, aristocrats and defeated MPs who have been handpicked by the Westminster establishment parties to pontificate on our future. I will take great delight when Scotland gains our independence, knowing that never again will we be governed by these ermine-clad offences to democratic legitimacy. SNP Constitution spokesperson Tommy Shepherd MP said, it is difficult to take seriously a report on democratic structures by a body, which is the most egregious example of a lack of democracy in the UK. The unelected, unaccountable and unrepresentative House of Lords is never more so than when it comes to attitudes to the governments of Scotland. Not one single member of that private members club supports independent self-government for Scotland, a position that is now favoured by a majority of the Scottish population. The Respect and Cooperation Report says the status quo can provide the best of both worlds for the UK's constituent nations. However, members who include ex-Scotland Office Minister and Dunlop Review author 
Lord Andrew Dunlop, said the UK government ought not to seek to legislate in devolved areas without consent, and a beefed-up role for the Lords should see the government provide a memo about the devolution implications of relevant bills and putting legislative consent issues under more commi committee scrutiny. This would also, it is said, see members look for input from devolved parliaments where appropriate and result in greater prominence for the granting or withholding of legislative consent by the devolved legislatures in the House of Lords business. The report says the government's move to spend levelling up fund cash in devolved nations without engagement has undermined trust and it says the lack of meaningful dialogue between the UK Parliament and devolved governments on legislative consent matters is a gap in the legislative process. There is a tendency for the government to devolve and forget, the committee says, and the Conservative administration needs to set out a clearer vision for the future of the Union. It says a stronger culture of respect, cooperation and partnership between governments should facilitate joint working on shared challenges like COVID and climate change. And backing the new Prime Minister and heads of devolved government's council, it calls for the development of devolution within England. Meanwhile, it says the House of Lords can play an important role in stronger interparliamentary relations. Baroness Taylor of Bolton said the UK government needs to articulate a compelling vision and narrative for the UK. She added, we believe a significant culture change is required in Whitehall, including the end of its top-down mindset. This will be critical if the new intergovernmental arrangements and any extension of devolution across England is to be a success. Fostering greater respect and cooperation between Whitehall and the different parts of the United Kingdom will be even more important in strengthening the Union. Report by Christine Patterson The National, January 20 Scottish Labour members fury over Christian Wakeford defection Report by Hamish Morrison Scottish Labour members have been left dismayed after the UK party welcomed the defection of a Tory through-and-through through MP. Christian Wakeford, the MP for Bury South, left the Conservative Party for the opposition just minutes before Boris Johnson appeared at PMQs. He was given a very warm welcome by Keir Starmer, but Labour members including a Scottish candidate in the upcoming local elections, have hit out at the decision. One member, who will stand for the council elections in May, called for an immediate recall and a by-election in Wakeford's seat 
the Labour member told the National, unless in the last week he has some radical change of his whole political mindset, the only reason he is jumping to Labour is he wants to keep his job. They should go straight to a by-election. When there were rumours Jeremy Corbyn might be starting his own party, people were saying he should step aside and have a by-election. If you're going to call it for him, then why are you not calling for it when a member of the party you're fighting against pops in? According to the public whip, Wakeford, who holds his seat by a majority of just 0.8%, voted to make the asylum system more strict and to cap or reduce public sector redundancy payments. The Labour member added, he voted for the £20 universal credit cut. He has voted for stricter asylum conditions and against climate change prevention, things we are supposed to be speaking out on. He has voted in line with the rest of the hard right votes they have been pushing through. He is a Tory through and through. Scottish Labour MSP Mercedes Villalba highlighted Wakeford's voting record. She said he had consistently voted against measures to prevent climate change, against measures to reduce tax avoidance and for a stricter asylum system. She said, this is not the voting record of someone fit to be a Labour representative. Former Labour MSP Neil Finlay responded, to say that Villalba was wrong. This is exactly the type of MP Keir Starmer wants, he said. He would rather have a Tory than a socialist. Sickening. Other Labour internal organisations have railed against Wakeford's acceptance into the party. The left-wing pressure group Momentum said, Christian Wakeford should not be in the Labour Party. Since 2019, Christian Wakeford has voted 382 times. He has voted with this hard-right Tory government 376 of those times. Once a Tory MP, always a Tory MP. Young Labour tweeted, Christian Wakeford himself co-sponsored a bill mandating by-elections for MPs who change party affiliation. The Labour Party must uphold Bury South members' right to choose their own Labour candidate and constituents should be able to reassess their MP. Christian Wakeford MP should not be admitted to the Labour Party. He has consistently voted against the interests of working class people for the £20 universal credit cut for the Nationality and Borders Bill, and for the Police and Crime Bill. In a letter to Johnson, Wakeford said, The policies of the Conservative government that you lead are doing nothing to help the people of my constituency, and indeed are only making the struggles they face on a daily basis worse. Sadly, both you and the Conservative Party as a whole have shown themselves incapable of offering the leadership and government this country deserves.
Wakeford was welcomed by the Labour leader Keir Starmer at PMQs. The leader of the opposition said, Like so many people up and down the country, he has concluded that the Prime Minister and the Conservative Party have shown themselves incapable of offering the leadership and government this country deserved. Scottish Labour and Wakeford were approached for comment. Report by Hamish Morrison, The National, January 20. Tory MSP stuns Scottish Parliament with answer on child safety. Report by Craig Meakin. An MSP drew gasps from Holyrood after she answered, No, I do not agree to the question the safety of our children is the most paramount thing. Surely the member agrees. Sharon Dowie stunned her colleagues in the Scottish Parliament after SNP MSP Kokab Stewart answered questions over when school exams will take place. The Tories are demanding that a decision on school exams be taken today. Speaking about the decision on when school exams will be held, Stuart said, The safety of our children is the most paramount thing. Surely the Tory member agrees. Dowie replied, No, I don't agree. I think we should be told today. It comes after the Tories tabled a motion claiming education has never been the First Minister Nicola Sturgeon's number one priority. Shirley Ann Somerville, Scotland's Education Secretary, labelled the Tory motion highly irresponsible. Report by Craig Meakin Recorded from the National on the 20th of January 2022 from the Culture Section Scottish site shortlisted for major EU Contemporary Architecture Prize by Richard Mason. A Scottish site has been shortlisted among European buildings for the 2022 European Union Prize for Contemporary Architecture. The shortlist of 40 sites across the EU includes contemporary buildings from 18 different countries with two in London and one in Helensburgh. The Hellhouse Box is a protective enclosure for Charles Rennie Mackintosh's residential masterpiece to enable restoration efforts due to almost 120 years of weathering and decay. The box also allows visitors to continue visiting the site throughout the process and experience the radical and unique conservation work in action. The Miles van der Rohe Award is given out every two years to works completed within the previous two years. Located about 25 miles west of Glasgow in Helensborough, the Hill House was completed in 1904 and is seen as a seminal part of the early 20th century European architecture. Mackintosh's composition of architectural styles was made possible with cement render and daring detailing, which has eventually succumbed to the elements as it is built on an exposed site. The big box is able to further halt decay as conservation work to retain this historic piece of Scottish architecture is able to halt further decay and buy time to repair the house. The building is seen as Macintosh's domestic masterpiece and was designed on commission from Glasgow book publisher Walter Blackie. 
Macintosh and his wife Margaret MacDonald Macintosh created almost everything seen in the home, from the building to the furniture and the textiles. The vast roof of the box prevents any further rain from reaching the house, whilst the stainless steel chainmail perimeter creates a unique drying room enclosure containing the restoration activities. The temporary museum enclosure includes vis- visitor facilities such as a timber entrance building and walkway for visitors to explore the structure up and over the house. With the restoration of the house expected to take up to 15 years, a decision was taken by the National Trust for Scotland not to prevent the public from seeing it over that time. NTS took this opportunity to attract new types of visitors to have an architectural experience of the Hill House. Access to the historic interiors is maintained during the restoration, whilst high-level walkways threaded through the box's structure allow new unseen perspectives that are fully accessible for all. Following completion of conservation works, the box and visitor centre will be removed and reused elsewhere. The Hill House box provides unique perspectives of this historic site during conservation work. EU Commissioner Mariah Gabriel said, Rethinking the way we are building is a must. High quality architecture is a cornerstone of the European Commission's approach to sustainability. And redefining European architects' roles as caregivers, architecture contributes to the European Green Deal and its cultural component, the new European Bajos. The EU Prize for Contemporary Architecture, the Mies van der Rohe Award, highlights the contribution of architecture to sustainable developments. We need young people, architects, artists, education and cultural professionals, innovators, entrepreneurs and regional authorities from all over Europe to actively engage and benefit from this initiative. The principal objectives of the Mies Award are to achieve a thorough understanding of the transformation of the build environment, to recognise and commend excellence and innovation in the field of architecture and to draw attention to the important contribution of architects and the development of new ideas with the undeniable support of clients and the involvement of those who will become the inhabitants and users of these places. A total of 532 works were nominated for the 2022 award and the expert jury drop a shortlist of 40 for the next phase of the prize. A group of five finalists for the award will be announced on Wednesday, February 16th, with the award ceremony to take place in May at the Mies van der Rohe Pavilion in Barcelona. That article was by Richard Mason, recorded from the National on the 20th of January 2022, from the Culture section, Volunteers Restoring Mansion Used by Bonnie Prince Charlie to Former Glory, by the National. A team of volunteer wall restorers are bringing Bannockburn House back to its former glory. The house, a 17th century mansion used by Bonnie Prince Charlie during the Siege of Stirling, is being fixed by 18 volunteers. They are working alongside two retired stonemasons to rebuild walls in the garden of the mansion and have so far restored over 150 square metres. Willie McEwen, one of the leading stonemasons on the project, discussed its success. By teaching these very dedicated volunteers traditional crafts, we're not only educating them on a prized set of skills, but we are turning Bannockburn back to its former glory, whilst using the land as a vehicle to teach others, he said. The programme has been a massive success. To be able to teach the volunteers completely traditional methods of stonemasonry is very exciting for us to be a part of. Other projects in the house are helping volunteers learn about architecture and traditional Jacobean engineering, while restoring 18th century windows. Jim Bennett, Chief Executive Officer at the Bannockburn House Trust, said, 
Our aim is to use the historical estate we have here at Bannockburn House as a vehicle to regenerate Bannockburn and people local to it, rather than using it solely as a heritage attraction. The Bannockburn House Trust made the house a community owned in 2017. At the time, it was the biggest community buyout in the UK. Hamish Trench, Chief Executive of the Scottish Land Commission, said the campaign will help highlight the land potential around Scotland. The way in which land is used can impact everything from house prices to climate change, Trench said. The Bannockburn House Trust and its great army of volunteers have taken a piece of Scotland's history and turned it into a present-day benefit while respecting the building and grounds itself. They've well and truly built a community project from the land around them that is adding so many different strands of value to the area. That article was by The National. And that was this week's The National podcast, only recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.